Hello and welcome to Vet Club. Uh, today is going to be uh, another journal club. And so I'm um, excited. We, we missed last week, um, unfortunately, due to some illness. We didn't have enough people um, to cover the hospital and not have me sitting here by myself. Um, so you're welcome for canceling that. Um, but we are going to be, you know, back on track. And articles, articles, yeah. articles, <laughs> so, um, so got the, got the sound, got, that's two in a row now that I think I've gotten, uh, the, the extra fancy intro music. Um, uh, David Grant is back again. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Um, so articles for this week, um, there are just two cause one of them was pretty long yep. and, um, uh, so, but what we're going to be talking about is essentially, Synthetic colloids, um, head of starches, uh, that kind of thing, and, and what we should be doing about it. Um, so the, the first article that I posted is um, from Frontiers in Veterinary Science, and it's entitled Colloids, Yes or No? A Gretchen Question Answered. Um, uh, the other article is actually the one I probably want to talk about first. Yeah. Um, and this is from Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and it's the effects of hydroxyethyl starch 130.4 on serum creatinine concentration and development of acute kidney injury in non-azotemic cats. Um, and the reason I want to start with that was that one's a research study. The other one's a review. Um, so I thought it would be appropriate um, yeah. to, to start that route. So, um, and this, the reason I picked this topic um, is I, I've actually, we'll, we'll talk about some things that I've mentioned on the podcast before. Um, this is so something, you know, that I care about. Um, but I think it's also uh, some of the things we've talked about in the recent journal clubs, uh, some of those same principles yeah. when it comes to research and statistics, I think come up again Absolutely. and again. Um, and so I was hoping, you know, it's a good opportunity to reinforce some of that. Um, and I think there's just still a lot of people out there who, who don't know a lot of the history and background um, behind synthetic colloids. Yeah. yeah. So it's always it, good to just bring it up again and again. Absolutely. Um, it's got an interest, in my mind, a sort yeah. of interesting past. And yes. my, uh, my past with it probably doesn't even go back to the beginning of it, but at least yeah. the evolution of its use and other synthetic colloids during my time. Is yeah. And you and I haven't interesting. talked about this before, I don't think. So no. I'm really mm -mm. curious to hear your perspective yeah. and, um, and how, if at all, things have changed for you over the years. But yeah. um, so this, uh, the recent articles from 2017, so that's still recent. Yeah. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at dates <laughs> of our, I was like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. And then I do the yeah. math and I was like, oh, that was two decades ago. So this one's mm -hmm. actually fairly recent. Um, so uh, this study, the, uh, it was, um, Looking at this is a retrospective study looking at clinically ill, critically ill cats, um, and so going back and looking at they had sixty two um, cats that were critically ill, uh, about 20, 26, Yeah, I'm looking at that. Twenty six had gotten head of starch, and thirty six had not. Um, and they were basically trying to go back and say what was the you know how many of them ended up developing yeah. acute kidney injury later and, and trying to compare those two groups. Now, Bobby, I've already forgotten what, what did they used to define critically ill. Um, so that, that's probably one of the, the arguments you could make. Um, the, I'm trying to remember if they used the, yeah, I'm looking for did they use the too. Apple score? I don't think they did. I don't think they used, I don't the, think they did. They used the veterinary AKI score, but yeah, but not for critically ill. Um, so yeah, that's, I'll look, I'll look that's another thing too. Yeah. So, and uh. I, maybe they didn't actually, I'm not even sure. I remember if they did, but, um, 
it's a, it's an important question mm-hmm. to discuss. Yeah. So, um, but essentially, they were taking cats that didn't start out as being azotemic. So all of the cats had to not have a prior history of being azotemic, and then they looked for um, evidence of development of AKI based on um, the veterinary acute kidney injury scoring system um, in the time frame of the study. And again, so it's retrospective, so that mm-hmm. always you know creates some limitations. But they did a good job of trying to include animals that they had a decent amount of um, yeah. short and semi long term follow up on. Um, so, so that was good. Ultimately, um, you know, their, their conclusions that what, you know, what they stated in the paper was that essentially, um, that hydroxyethyl stars administration to critically ill non-azotemic cats seems to be safe. A larger prospective study is required to determine the effect of hetastarch administration in higher dosage and for prolonged periods of time. So, um, for me, like, how do you define safe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, I think in general, this was like a well-designed study. Um, you know, the, the work they did was fair, but there's some significant and severe yeah. limitations to it. Absolutely. Um, and then I, I would argue they didn't, in light of the fact that this was published in 2017, after we've learned a lot about the potential, you know, dangers of synthetic colloids, I would have liked to see them, you know, I guess tell the other side a little bit better um, and mm-hmm. explain a little bit more the specific limitations in their study because I yeah. think it's it's a kind of a dangerous conclusion to make. Yeah, and it's a it's a common conclusion from yeah. veterinary studies looking at morbidity and mortality with the use of um, starches. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's I think we're probably going to come back around to population size as a yep. major limiting factor here. <laughs> yep. Um, but um, I'll, I'll just clarify the <clears throat> inclusion criteria for critical uh, just meant that patients were in their ICU okay, yeah. and had at least two creatinine measurements on That's right. separate days. So I think depending on where you work, um, yeah. that could be a very different population. Right. Of, so here uh, at our at our school, yeah. we, we still have one ICU, which is used yeah. even for patients Stable with fluid therapy and, yeah. and very minor monitoring yeah. um, versus... I know where you've worked before, you've had step-down units and critical ICUs. And so um, we don't quite know how severely ill these animals were. uh, And how to compare the two groups, right? Like were they equally severe in those groups? But sure. But if we acknowledge, okay, they were were cats that were in the hospital um, and, uh, you know, some of them did need or were thought to have needed, you know, some aggressive fluid therapy. Yeah. So if we get, we'll give them a pass on that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So... But yeah, like, I mean, it's it's hard for me not to jump right into the issue of sample size. Yeah, absolutely. Because do I it. don't recall, because again, this was a couple of weeks ago when mm-hmm. I had read all these. I don't think they did any power analysis. I don't recall any mention of that, no. And I've and that's this article my several times biggest over the beef. years. My biggest yeah. beef with it, because, and again, we've mentioned this on, on you know previous journal clubs that sometimes with a power analysis, if there's no information out there, you just kind of have to make up you know what you think you know, you should find. But when we look at the literature and people, the, the number of patients they have to evaluate to identify a statistically significant difference is just so much higher than mm-hmm. we're likely ever going to see in veterinary studies. I mean, we're yeah. not going to get studies where we're comparing patients in the thousands mm-hmm. um, in order to identify these small but potentially important 
differences. And so when you have 20 and 30 um, animals in your groups and you conclude that um, there was no difference in the outcome uh, or in the, in the, you know, whatever your intended outcome, in this case, it was the development of AKI. That's for me, like, of course not. Of course you're not. Like I wouldn't have expected um, to find a difference because the magnitude um, of difference when it's been demonstrated in other species, people, has been not dramatic. You're not going to expect a 20% um, change in the incidence of AKI in patients that um, receive head of starch. So, yeah. I, so that's frustrating. But we, we, we critique articles because it's important to be critical in your reading. Yeah. But we also want to be sure to thank these people for doing oh, for research sure. that's needed. So um, as with probably the research you and I have done, mm-hmm. it's a really good start. Yep. Often not yep. sufficient to make solid, yeah. I permanent, think that's my long-term beef. conclusions from. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really the issue. It's not like how they did it, how they organized no, it. All no. that was good. It's that conclusion that head of starch appears to be safe. And I was like, ooh, yeah. that, that to me was the, the over yeah, step. Could that was a, like, they could use a few more qualifiers. Yeah, exactly. It was like, we didn't identify this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in the paper, they do a better job of that. But like yeah. a lot of people just read the abstract. That's right. And so it was like, okay, cool. I can, I can use head of starch again. And there's another thing I, I want to talk about a little bit more later. But um, the other potentially frustrating situation, and I, this is also true in the human studies, is how do you define kidney injury? Yeah. <laughs> Um, because that's also like, we're not good at that. No. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. Like, uh, looking for azotemia is we know an incredibly insensitive way Absolutely. to identify kidney injury. Like, I mean, most people get taught you have to lose 75% of your nephrons in order to start to see azotemia. That's right. So one and a half kidneys, which is, is great because that means you can donate a kidney. Like that's why, <laughs> that's why you can donate a kidney to somebody yeah. who needs one is because you, you know, we have this huge, huge reserve capacity, yeah. but it also means you aren't going to recognize if 50% of your patient's nephrons have been lost. And yeah. that seems like a big, like that seems like something that should scare us. I'm not saying that's likely what happened in this yeah. case, yeah. Um, but uh, but I do think when we're using and and, and I say we the big grand we because this is yeah. true in human medicine as well. Like we still just collectively, as a as a medical community, have not come up with reliable, consistent, and sensitive markers um, for kidney injury to use clinically. Um, yeah, that are measure measurable. Yeah, without like a rapidly. biopsy. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So that's frustrating. It's not off topic. It's it's a related question. So, um, because waiting for azotemia to occur is a, a horrible way to go monitoring right. for <laughs> yes. development of renal disease in at least in an acute in a hospitalized right. setting, um, do you feel comfortable with the commonly used um, guide of an increase of 0.3? I uh, like that or, better. Or, I certainly yeah. like that better. Three milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. So even if you're within the normal range. Of time. Yeah. yeah. Really good point. So yeah. a lot of the criteria are just from baseline. So if your baseline creatinine was 0.7 yeah. and it goes up to one, that you should take note of. I do like that. That's mm-hmm. definitely better. Yes. Um, but what I still don't think we have is good studies to say, what does that correlate to? Yeah. Um, because I think there's a danger in both ends. I think there's a danger that we're still going to miss some patients mm-hmm. um, that have a- AKI or you know early CKD. But I think on the other end, we're also potentially from just the normal fluctuations throughout the day, you know, muscle turnover, those types of things. We might 
overestimate the incidence of AKI in some situations yeah. if mm-hmm. we're not careful. So, um, yes, I think I think the key for me in in using that information is to say I should take note. I should pay attention to that. I don't necessarily yeah. know specifically what I should do with it, other than I should be cautious. Um, yeah. Is kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So yes, I agree, and that's a really good point to make that not just looking for azotemia, but even small changes yeah. in uh, in your BUN, well, in your creatinine more the BUN too. I mean, pay attention to that. Yeah. But the creatinine specifically changes of as little as 0.3 have been shown to be clinically relevant. Absolutely. Um, now that presumes that you're measuring it on like the same machine. And yep. so those, <laughs> that makes it messy. Absolutely. So if we use an iStat for one and then the lab for another one and a different machine, then that kind of gets trickier too. It does. Um, but it's, 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 it's one step closer, I think, to finding things earlier. Yeah. Um, but you have to have that suspicion. You still have to be like, I'm, you know, diligently watching these things. Yeah. I mean, that's hard too. Like I imagine there were probably a lot of other cats they could have included in this study, but they didn't have two, you know, serial blood parameters because they're cats and we don't want to exsanguinate them by checking blood all the time. And, um, (laughs) there needs to be a reason. And, um, you know, a lot of these cats in, in the study didn't develop AKI. And so if they were clinically improving and doing well, there's no need. So a lot of those patients would have been excluded. Um, I can imagine when they were going through this. And so, yeah, these types of, they're hard to do. They're really, they're mm-hmm. really hard to do. Um, so like you said, you know, certainly appreciate and applaud these people for, for getting the ball rolling because prior to this study, most of the, most of the research in veterinary medicine um, on, uh, you know, synthetic colloids on the effects of AKI or coagulation have mostly been in vitro um, or like experimental studies, really small numbers, like six. And it's been mostly in dogs. Yep. Um, so, you know, kudos to them for just doing a cat study because there's just not enough of those in general. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we just have to be a little careful how, um, how powerfully we accept the conclusions. Yeah. Before um, we get into the, the, their specific conclusions and maybe some of the numbers that yeah. you and I might uh, question. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the fact that they they excluded cats that got less than five milliliters per kilogram of head of starch? I, I don't, I haven't thought about it. I just thought I'd throw the question out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what they were hoping um, was to include patients that had enough of a volume that they're like, we expect, you know, you know, we're, we're trying to, if anything, kind of not skew the results, but really narrow it down to those that had a, a large enough dose of yeah. starch. But, um, and then it makes the stats easier, I suppose, later on when you're trying to be like, well, is there a dose related yeah. effect? So I understand it. Um, yeah. So sort of picking the most, uh, at-risk population in theory. In theory. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the problem. It's still, we don't really know. Um, but, um, and I think, you know, partly because, we don't have a good comparison of, of their two groups. Like there's right. not um, a, a particular criteria to say these ones were equally severe to these ones or, or so on and so forth. Um, so I think in, for that reason, probably narrowing it is, is a fair thing to do. I don't think it's unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's fewer numbers. Um, but if they had included those numbers, some people would have been like, well, yeah, of course those ones aren't because they only had, you know, two or three mils per kilo. Of course you're not going to see it there or, you know, it just, it makes it messier, yeah. um, which is one of the hard parts about retrospective studies. But I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Would you have included them? Uh, no, I, I think, I think your explanation is, yeah. is exactly how I would think about it too. Yeah. Let's, let's pick the group that we think are most at risk and that way we have the best chance of detecting smaller differences. Um, so yeah, I I think it makes sense. Yeah. I think it was reasonable. Um, 
the let's see what their definition for um, AKI was a greater than 150% increase of mm-hmm. creatinine. Um, now they were these. This was um, the study was done in Europe, and so they're using the international units for creatinine. So 26 micromoles per liter. Um, whereas yeah. I think if you did this here, that would be yeah. The conversion factor yeah. is a 88. Yeah. Between micromoles and milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. So what I don't know is what's the precision between like if you're going to measure creatinine in milligrams per deciliter, um, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Are they getting more precise numbers? Ooh, yeah. I see what you're saying because it's uh, sort of finer units. Right. Since I don't don't measure creatinine out to the the hundredths place. Right. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I have no idea. I just (laughs) thought about it now too. Yeah. I don't know. It's like in my head that logically made sense, but like it also doesn't because they're, I'm sure they're using the same or similar yeah. actual methodologies. Well, you're just I, getting, I think by number. using a percent change yeah. that uh, sort of maybe negates the potential for precision there. So it's just how much rounding happens when they do the, yeah. the uh, creatinine and they give me a 0.3. Um, I don't know. So um, the vault. Okay. So the, here's the thing I probably found most surprising for yeah. this study was um, the actual volume of head of starch that some of these cats got. Like it was a lot mm-hmm. um, because I feel like I, when I was trained, it was like maxing out at like 20 mils per kg per day. Yeah. I have that number in my head yeah. and the cats that got head of starch in this study, um, they received a mean volume of just under a hundred mils per kg per day. Um, no. No, total. That was in total. That was Sorry. Total during 100 megs over four days. But so that's yeah. still like 20, that's over 20 mils yeah. per kick per day on average. Um, if now the range was 11 days. So that was also kind of like for me, sort of a, a weird way to keep track of it in my head. Mm-hmm. But so they said their median dose um, was 20.1. So just a smidge. But the range, like one cat at the upper end of the range got 40.5 mils per kick per day. Yeah. So boom. <laughs> yeah, that just seemed like a lot. It surprises me too. It's probably double what I recall ever giving to a cat in a day. Um, and I could be completely wrong here, but I, I feel like I don't see cats with severe hypoproteinemia um, nearly yeah. as often as, as dogs. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why that I've never, never it. used it and yeah. we're clinical for it. So maybe that's why I never went quite as high as I did with the dosing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, I think back to like so when I was in my residency, um, which was in the uh, late 2010s, uh, like 2008 to 2011, I was using head of starch. I was yeah. using you know a fair bit of it. But even at the time, we were like we're trying to max out at 20 mils per cake per day. Now I'll be honest with you, I don't know where that number came from. No, I don't either. <laughs> uh, my, well, I can tell you where I remember it. I think it was CVT 10 was maybe the first time. Oh, sorry, okay. current yeah. veterinary therapy 10. Yeah. I think was maybe the first time place I. Some mention of head of starch on a dose, and I haven't gone back to look to see if there's a reference there. Well, because I, I haven't I used not. it in a long time, so I haven't bothered to <laughs> yeah. look at any of this. I haven't uh-huh. done the research to be like, well, should I have been? I don't know because I don't. I don't really use it anymore. So, yeah. Um, but but yeah, that that definitely I, I remembered. And then when if I would use it to bolus, I would use a lower um, volume to bolus. So instead of doing like a ten or twenty mil per kilo bolus of head of starch, I would do like five yep. or ten. Um, and then in cats, I because they seem more susceptible to fluid overload, I would be yes. even more cautious. Um, um, uh, it, it, because again, thinking about with a cat, whether you're talking about a synthetic or um, a, a natural colloid, if you you know give a fluid that is going to, in theory, stay in the vascular space longer, if you overload them, that 
becomes harder to, yeah. to manage because they're not going to redistribute it um, as effectively. So, um, so I was, you know, even at the time was more cautious with cats in general. And I just really don't remember using a whole lot um, of head of starch in, in cats, even back when I was using head of starch yeah. much more liberally. Um, but um, so th this was, you know, the numbers, I think even just if you look at the numbers um, that they that they reported in the results, mm -hmm. um, I think it's pretty easy, at least for me, when I look at the numbers to see like this, this wasn't a high powered study. Yeah. Right. Because when you look at the raw and let me pull them up, the raw numbers of like the differences between maybe it's just what I can look in the, in the abstract. But um, what do they say? The short term percent change in serum creatinine concentration um, and development of AKI were not significantly different between cohort. Oh, no, that wasn't in there. They just give us the P values there. That's in the results. Where is it? I should have highlighted this better. Um, okay, based on the AKI definition um, of an increase in serum creatinine of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter or 26 micromoles per liter, or an increase of ba um, from baseline of greater than 150% of cats, 11 out of 36 of the unexposed cats, or 31%, and 5 of 26 of the head of starch exposed cats, 19%, develop AKI within 2 to 10 days. And this was not statistically significantly different. So if you say 19% versus 31%, mm -hmm. that to me, you're just like, oh, that seems different. But yeah. the numbers were small enough that they're like, no, that, that, right. we could, that could be attributed to random chance. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's the first clue when I'm reading a study and I see numbers that just in my gut look right. different, but then they say they weren't. I'm like, all right, that's probably, probably not a, a yeah. high powered study. Um, because if you had a thousand patients and those, those numbers, those statistics held up and it was 19 and 30, you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, but that's where the power, even if you do the power analysis after the fact, when you're doing a retrospective study, you, you get what you get. And I understand yeah, that absolutely. aspect of it. But doing a power analysis afterwards to say, our study based on our numbers was sufficiently powered to detect a difference of X. Um, this is what we could have said. We would have had to see, uh, you know, a 30% change uh, or difference between these two groups in order for our numbers to, to, to detect uh, a statistically significant difference. Yeah. Um, just to put it in perspective. Yeah. Another um, number I'd, I'd like to bring up in table one mm -hmm. um, is the difference in age between uh, the exposed head of starch exposed group and the unexposed group. And you can see the, the head of starch exposed group was at least yeah. based on the median of mm -hmm. a much younger group, so about three years versus almost 10 years yeah. of age. Um, and, yep. uh, you know, kidney function declines yep. as animals age, both you and I and cats and dogs. Yep. And um, my point being those younger animals being the ones that got exposed to head of starch might've had a little more renal reserve. And yeah. They started with more nephrons, <laughs> a little more survival reserve, a little yep. more uh, resiliency than those older animals, which uh, again, I'm just hypothesizing, right. but, but um, could have minimized mm -hmm. a difference that would yeah. have been otherwise seen had the two groups been age matched. And of course it's retrospective, so you right. can't change it, but I think it also potentially, um, could have affected their findings. Yeah, it could have masked, um, you know, some injuries that might have yeah. otherwise been there. Well, and that's like what we were talking about at the beginning of the paper. Like, how did they determine critically ill? And mm -hmm. then how did they compare the two groups? Because um, that's, you know, you, you want to try to do that. And so they, they did a good job of sharing, like, okay, these were the differences. Yes. And that allows you to kind of make your own assessment. Um, you know, the... It, 
same kind of thing. The the cats in the unexposed group were also, uh, no, those ones were bigger. Um, the cumulative dose, obviously, you know, there was a huge range for that too, yeah. um, which, you know, makes it a little bit tricky. So if you start to categorize those, even as like, you know, low dose versus mid dose versus high dose, the numbers start to get smaller and smaller each time you try to compare a group. Um, the daily dose, you know, a hospital, this huge range to the hospital um, stay. I thought that was mm-hmm. really impressive actually for both groups. One, yeah. the range was three to 37 days. The other one was one to 45 days. It was kind of ridiculous. Wow. I was like, man, mm-hmm. um, so good, good for you guys. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, but you know, it's, yeah, it's just tough. Um, you know, what are you going to do? The, uh, the difference in the diagnosis, like what, um, what were they presenting for? Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, that wasn't too bad. Um, there, you know, I think the, um, the big discrepancy there as far as the trauma was pretty equal between the two groups. Um, the, uh, ICD-11 abdominal. Um, there were a lot more in um, the, which group was that? Now I can't remember which one was that for that chart. Um, that was the exposed group. So like they, those weren't perfectly across the board. Like how much, um, you know, did the underlying disease process mm-hmm. potentially affect this? Um, and, the, you know, obviously the, the broader your criteria are for enrolling cats, the more numbers you get, um, but you also get more potential for confounders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's always the the challenge in these types of studies as well. Like, do I want to have four cats per group and I limit it to cats with pancreatitis or do I want to have more cats, hopefully, you know, uh, getting more enrolled, pa- not enrolled, but included yeah. patients. Um, but do I dilute out the effect because there's so many other confounders that I just don't know about. So it's, it's hard. Doing yeah. research is really hard. Yeah. For me, though, the take home on this, even though their conclusion was that um, head of starch in this population appears to be safe, um, I didn't start using it again. No. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like you did either. No. no, no, um, no. So I, I guess then, you know, the question is, so if, if, you know, somebody's listening to this and being like, okay, well then, you know, you're always telling us, Dr. Connor, Dr. Grant, you're always telling us what's the literature say? What's the literature yeah. say? Um, so I guess the question becomes like, why, why not? Why does this why is this not sufficient? Um, I have like a very, you know, specific answer, but what, what are your thoughts? Like, why does this not impact you other than the things that we've already talked about? Or maybe that's it. Those are the reasons. <laughs> oh, because one, I, I don't, since I stopped using mm-hmm. colloids, which is probably about uh, seven or eight years ago when I think the first canine study came out yeah. looking at this the same uh, risk of mortality and AKI risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't found that I've missed it, that I've really yeah. needed it. Um, I also can't say that when I was using it, um, I found situations where it seemed to really change. Yeah. Like I gave it and then there was some profound change in the patient. Yeah. Um, with rare exception, I, I will yeah. say that I have sometimes had dogs, a handful of dogs that um, had significant pleural and abdominal effusion as a result of hypoproteinemia mm-hmm. um, and in trying to prepare them for anesthesia rather yeah. than tapping their chest. Um, I do recall sometimes giving head of starch and yeah. having their 
pleural effusion dry up. Yeah. Not, not completely. Sure. Um, but but improve. significantly reduce yeah. overnight. So it did have some some utility. Um, but uh, as far as why this wouldn't change what I do, um, one, uh, yes, all the all the studies, both dogs yeah. and cats, are are all small. Yeah. Um, two, I think you have mentioned this in past journal clubs, which is that I don't see a reason why the physiology yeah. of a dog or a cat would be different than a human yeah. in this situation. So I'm still very open to the possibility that there really is yeah. a, a risk for yeah. mortality and morbidity in the use of these products in certain settings, which I think in humans is predominantly the use in sepsis. That's when it, they're like, you just really shouldn't use right. it in sepsis. That's, it's pretty clear, I think, the evidence. I think most people are, are comfortable there. It's other situations where they're like, well, we don't know. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm open to the possibility that sure. maybe it would be useful in other situations. But um, honestly, the septic ones are the ones that I'm reaching for right. every last straw to <laughs> exactly. try to help. And, and so... Yeah. Um, I sort yeah. of look at it as, like, where's the burden of proof? I, I like reading legal thrillers, so maybe this is why I think about it this way. But um, for me, you have, you're usually talking about using a synthetic colloid in place of what? Are we replacing a crystalloid? Are we replacing a natural colloid? Are we, like, what are we replacing? And so for me, the it kind of becomes, okay, if I'm going to just use crystalloids, mm -hmm. which are cheaper, readily available, um, you're going to have to do more than just prove to me that this is non-inferior. It costs mm -hmm. more, right? Um, yep. There's evidence in other species that it's harmful. So you actually have to prove to me, not only is it safe, but it's superior. It's mm -hmm. going to lead to improved outcomes. And that's the, the for me, that's kind of the bar that I have set that I, I, I don't see myself starting to use these until somebody can show me in our species um, or, or even in others. I mean, I can extrapolate if they're like in this specific cohort of patients that have disease X or if this situation, this is when they can, the, the, the potential benefits outweigh the potential risks, then I'll reconsider it. But right now we're, we're, I feel like a lot of the studies in veterinary patients are just like, it's not worse. It's not worse. I'm like, well, even if that's true, which I'm not convinced because of what we've already talked about, you need to convince me I should use this in place of something because it's um, it's better. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have those studies. That's yeah. kind of the bar that I've set. This is more expensive. There's the potential for harm based on um, studies in people. And so you're going to have to prove to me more than just it's not worse. It, mm -hmm. You have to prove to me that it's better to get me to prescribe something like this or pull this off the shelf um, because I have enough questions about it. That That's really for me the, that's my litmus test. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I'll just keep using what I'm using. Because like you said, when I stopped using it, it wasn't like, oh, every, you know, patients were just dying left and right. Like, no, that's not what was happening. Is it possible, if not likely, that there are some specific patients some there, somewhere that would benefit from mm -hmm. from synthetic colloids in, in place of crystalloids? Yeah. Like that's, mm -hmm. there very likely is. But we haven't figured out what those are yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And until then... Um, I'm just going to go with my first do no harm and stick with the thing that I think is least likely to cause harm until I have good justification for adding something else that might cause harm, but might also, you know, cause benefit because anything that we give, any treatment we do that has the potential for an effect has mm -hmm. the potential for an adverse effect like that. Yeah. That's just, you know, that's a soapbox all the time. If it can help, then it can probably also hurt. And if not, it's a placebo. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, which is kind of what, you know, transitions into the, the, the review. Um, okay, I have to ask you, did you know what a Gretchen question was? No, and I, 
I don't even remember that term being used. That's in the there, title. So. It's the oh. title. Yeah. And I, I was like, a Gretchen question. I don't know what that means. Did I had to Google it. it. Okay. I, had, I Googled it. Um, and it's, um, I'm going to say it wrong. It's, it's a, it's basically borrowed from a German word, um, Gretchen Freuden or some or Froggen, or I don't know. I don't speak huh. German, obviously. Um, it comes from, um, uh, Goethe's, um, oh crap. Now I'm forgetting the, the name of the, um, the literature. Oh shoot. Oh, I'll have to Google that again. It was two weeks ago that we were supposed to do I'll this. Look it up, yeah. Um, yeah, you have your computer. Look it up. Oh, yeah. Um, so basically it's a character from a Goethe play. I'm saying that wrong. I'm sure somebody can correct me, but good. basically the character Gretchen, the Gretchen question is basically if I'm asking you like a really uncomfortable question and you answering it, it's going to like, it's going to reveal a bunch of unpleasant, unhappy things. Like I know that this question is going to make people uncomfortable <laughs> and I know that the answer is going to make, make people uncomfortable but yeah it's a it's a german it's from a german term um and yeah so that's what a gretchen okay. question is i didn't okay. know hadn't heard yeah, of that kind of kind of random but i was like uh what is this is this a person i don't know who this <laughs> is um but so uh, these i think both of these folks practice in europe so maybe i don't know if um Dr. Adamic or Dr. Yazova are German. Maybe they are. Um, but anyhow, so that's what a Gretchen, that was the other thing I learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so this was a, uh, an in-depth lengthy review yeah. article, um, basically trying to say, let's comb through the literature, what's available to us. And we're going to make some recommendations on whether or not, or we're going to make some statements on sure. whether or not we can make recommendations to use, um, various synthetic colloids. Um, so it, it's not um, uh, necessarily even like a meta-analysis or, or no. a, a, an exhaustive review, but they're like, our goal is to be able to provide you with our clinical recommendations. Yeah, it was pretty um, good. And yeah, I thought it was. I thought they did a good job. They um, they went into a little bit of the history mm-hmm. of why, why and when this became so controversial. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. Okay. Um, so, um, but <laughs> I still think it's worth re- mentioning again because you know, I, we are in the scientific community, the grand we capital W we um, are not immune to mistakes, to fraud, to, Mm. you know, liars and cheaters. (laughs) Um, And it's really hard to even just admit that, but um, you know, we have our share of scandal and controversy Mm -hmm. and oftentimes it doesn't make it into um, the, the general, consciousness of, of the, the population. I mean, occasionally it does when you have, um, you know, vaccine skeptics claiming that, you know, vaccines cause autism and then, and then people learn about like, Oh, this person maybe isn't um, following all the, the best, um, uh, you know, above board protocols here. But sometimes when something like this comes up, like the average like lay person outside of medicine and a lot of people inside of um, at least veterinary medicine have no idea that in two, the early 2010s, 2011, 12, something like that, um, some, I think it was almost 60 articles were retracted by, because this one um, researcher um, basically mm-hmm. couldn't trust any of his studies, um, falsified data, lied about some things. And, mm-hmm. and the, it's really sad. That's it not is. the only example of those no, types of no, no, fraud. Um, but there's been a few over history where they were big and far reaching. And this, this is one of the biggest in, in modern medical history. Um, and it's, it is really sad because it just forevermore now, it sort of taints the conversation. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Um, and any research that's done. Having said that, um, it was slow, but the peer review process, like, kind of did work eventually, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, 
in the sense that when something is published, it's out there. People are reading about it and they can be like, hey, um, this, this, things aren't adding up here. Um, and then, you, you know, you have contact information so you can reach out to the, the authors and say, hey, I have some questions. Can you clarify? And you start digging, you start digging, and then you go, wait, wait a minute, I'm not getting satisfactory answers. But also, one of the most important tenets of science that we often forget about. Mm-hmm. Especially in veterinary medicine. Oh my gosh, is repetition like yep. you have to replicate in order for something to to be for me to say like yes that is a thing that is real maybe not to law level but that's like a real thing and i believe it like it should be replicated under various conditions it mm-hmm. should be you know it shouldn't just be this hospital gets these results other right. hospitals should be able to get the same results and you should be able to replicate somebody's study and get similar results and we have this problem where like we don't value that. In fact, yeah. you know, there are some of our major, our, like some of our biggest journals in our profession, some of the ones with the, the biggest impact factor will say directly on their website um, for instructions to authors that we are not interested in studies that are replications of previous studies. Like yeah. they'll say that. I know, it's I, shocking to me. It's <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but that's literally science. That's that's what science is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just always makes me kind of sad. Uh, yeah. I actually have a, yeah, I have one of my long-term goals is to create a journal, a uh, journal of repeated measures, <laughs> yep. something like that, where that's literally all we would publish. Yeah. And my hope would actually be, I've, I've thought about this a lot. Um, so if somebody out there wants to steal this idea, it is yours. It is yours. I would be super thrilled if somebody wants to take this, but I would love the idea of having it be like a student like a primary, like, hey, students are getting introduced into research. Guess what? Step one, go find somebody else's study and replicate it. Yeah. And we are going to help you do that and we're going to support it. And then we're going to publish it here. This, that's all we're going to publish is yeah. repetitions of other science. Yeah. Uh, this is why I'm, I'm so, when I, when I review articles as part of the peer review process mm-hmm. and when I review articles as part of journal clubs, I'm really fixated on the materials and methods because yeah. if you don't provide Mm-hmm. great detail in the materials and methods, then somebody else cannot repeat your study right. and therefore no chance to validate or invalidate yeah. what, what you've done. Um, so for those of you doing research, write down everything you there. do. Have, you know, carry the little notebook like people did before computers and write down yeah. everything you do yep. and describe that. Um, there's no harm in putting that Nope. In the in the manuscript. No, you want somebody right. to, to replicate what you've done because then guess what? Then we can do a meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. Then eventually we can say, okay, we took results from this study and this study and they all had similar methods and so we can actually lump these together and make some comparisons. Or we can say, okay, in my methods, the other benefit of that is like, here's what we did and then we led to this frustration. If mm-hmm. I were going to do this again, I would do it differently. Okay, cool. We can learn from those mistakes. But if we... Yeah, I don't know if we just don't share that. The other issue that I will have in, and this is true in, in just throughout the medical profession, not just veterinary medicine, but this idea of negative results not being results. Yeah. Like, oh, we didn't show a significant difference. You're mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's that's part of it. That's when you have to add mm-hmm. that to the, and so a lot of those just end up collecting dust on somebody's desk, either because they didn't feel like that it was worth submitting somewhere. Like, oh, nobody will publish this. Um, or they tried and somebody said, we're, you know, that's not flashy enough. Like nobody's going to be excited about that. Like, hey, we did this study and we found no difference. Like, unless that's controversial. Right. Unless that goes counter to, you know, people's established beliefs on something, nobody cares. It's not, I was like, but that's so valuable. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So I, 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 I um, I don't know where you want to go with Wherever the you rest want. of the time. So if you <laughs> if you don't want to go this direction, sure. let me know. But I was was thinking um, this morning, 
if I was a student or a fairly a person fairly young in my mm-hmm. training career for emergency and critical care, um, and I listened to the last few journal clubs that oh. we talked about, mm-hmm. I might be thinking if I have a patient come in in shock, yeah, and I want to try to rapidly expand their blood volume, yeah. I've now been told that <laughs> chloride load <laughs> yep. is a risk factor for AKI. Yep. Mm-hmm. I've been told that head of starch, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't get into what we the mean other, by head yeah. of starches. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just sort of lumped all of them here. Sure. Um, that that's a risk factor for AKI, mm-hmm. or, or maybe. Yeah. Um, the veterinary signing studies haven't really shown that, but yeah. um, it may be. So does that mean that I should volume resuscitate all patients with lactated ringer solution and that's it or blood. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, um, I think the, the main thing I want people to think about, and then we can talk about just practical. Um, we can give people our practical thoughts, but, um, things that we think we know that like, this is a thing we know mm-hmm. are maybe not as, you know, set in stone as, as we once thought. Oh, yeah. Um, cause I definitely taught for a very long time, like LRS or saline, whatever, just resuscitate them. Yep. And if you are in a hospital and you have, um, you've got a patient that comes in crashing and you feel like they need a fluid bolus and your last bag of LRS just got used for something else. And all you have is a 0.9. Yes, by all means use the saline, yeah. right? Use the saline. If the only thing you have, the only fluid you have on your shelf is head of starch, is synthetic head of starch, use that. Yep. Um, I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. What I would argue is when you're making plans for what to stock in your hospital, yeah. right? Thinking about that. And in general, um, LRS is going to be my preference yeah. as a resuscitative fluid. Um, it, it is for most situations and for situations where there's a potential theoretical argument for avoiding LRS and using saline, I, I w- it would be the same kind of situation. Like either we don't really have clear evidence or I'd say, well, if LRS is all you have, then use the LRS. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to give people the impression that this should paralyze you in practice, sure. um, but it, it should give you some pause, right? And it's more of a planning thing. Like what should you stock in your hospital? Um, you know, I, um, I would argue we should be pretty cautious about um, using synthetic colloids liberally. Um, if I, I think like you mentioned, there are some situations where you feel like your back's against the wall and you're like, I, I don't know what to do. Um, those patients that have hypoalbuminemia or low um, colloid osmotic pressure. And if I give them crystalloids, they're just third spacing. Their edema is mm-hmm. just getting worse, okay. whether that's um, interstitial edema or pleural um, and abdominal effusions, wh- whatever that happens to be. And yeah, my preference now today would probably be to go with a natural colloid, but not everybody's going to have that available to them. And so if you say, I'm going to keep some head of starch on my shelf for those types of situations and use them in those cases. Yeah, I, I, I would support you in that mm-hmm. um, because you've gone through the thought process and you said weighing out the pros and cons and the, and the, the benefits and risks and between get, having nothing available and having this, I think this is preferable. Okay. Somebody else might say, you know what? I'm just going to use the crystalloids and deal with that. And I would support that too, because I just don't think we have enough to definitively answer the question. And then, then real life kind of gets in the way too. It's like, what is feasible for us to do? Yeah. Um, but um, I do think that when you're talking about resuscitation, 
if you only stock in your hospital LRS and blood products, you're probably going to serve most of your patients pretty well. Yeah. Not going to lie. I mean, I, I think that's about all we use here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I, I think that that's okay. There are times when I'm like, okay, the sodium is, is, you know, really high and I want to make a, a hyper, um, a hypernatremic solution or something that's isotonic to the patient. Mm-hmm. You could make an argument for starting with 0.9% saline. I'm actually going to prefer to like make up my own bag of fluids with, you know, the, the concentration that I want, but not everybody's going to have that available to them as well. No. Um, but you can feel okay to say, you know what, it's just not feasible for us to stock nine different fluid types in our hospital. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you're in that situation and you're having to choose between 0.9% saline and LRS, I would vote for LRS though. Sure. You know, based on the evidence that we have right now, that could change again. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly could. We can get new information that says there's actually this other thing in LRS and they're going to have to reformulate that and make something better. But from the, the chloride perspective, um, so it doesn't have to be LRS. It yeah. could be plasmolite A or, um, um, oh man, I'm blank. Normasol R. Um, but so something that is more balanced would be my, my argument to stock that in your hospital. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you're choosing, I would... I would ideally choose blood products over a synthetic colloid, but that's just not practical for everybody. And the shelf life is not the same. Um, Now, if we can get products, other like something like oxyglobin, did you ever, how, what were your thoughts on that? I was around for oxyglobin. Yeah. Um, Did you like it? Well, it made off a lot of cats yellow. I recall. Yes, (laughs) it did. Um, And, we should clarify though. That's what the the oxyglobin itself um, yes. it was. It wasn't it wasn't um, causing hyperbilirubinemia. No. Um, it actually that's the color that it would turn them. <laughs> yes, um, I I definitely used it, and I think that was sort of the start of the downfall of using uh, starches yeah. for me. Yeah, um, was when oxyglobin became available, um, but then oxyglobin went off the market and. Yeah. I didn't go back to using starches. Yeah. Oxyglobin, for those that don't know, was a shelf-stable hemoglobin-based product. It was based on bovine Bovine hemoglobin, hemoglobin, but it wasn't contained in a cell. So it was free hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially, you could add oxygen-carrying capacity um, to your patient's bloodstream. And the the nice part about it was that um, if it's – there's no antigenic stimulation, in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, there was no cross-matching needed there because there's no cells. Um, it was a cell-free product. Um, and again, you, you know, no refrigeration. It could, I don't remember what the shelf life was, but it was months at the very mm-hmm. least. Um, and so that was, that was a handy product to have available in like trauma centers and things like that. It was developed for the military as a lot of those types of things are. Um, then it wasn't being used in the military very much because they came up with better stuff. And um, so veterinary, um, the, the veterinary community was the primary source. And then the company that was making it had some issues with their production yeah. um, and ended up that company got shut down. It was part of this whole thing. And then somebody else, another company had purchased the rights to start making it. And they, they did for like a minute. They had a yeah. couple like prototypes and then it, for like a minute. <laughs> yeah, it was about a minute. And then yeah. I was like, Oh, we're going to get oxyglobin back. This is really exciting. And then it, it never, nothing ever came of it. So yeah. Um, yeah. But Anyhow, I think, yeah, I mean, what's your take? How many fluids would you stock on your shelves if it were up to you? I mean, what I've, what I've historically taught students is carry saline or LRS yeah. for replacement. Um, nowadays, I would tell them LRS. Yeah. Um, and then some sort of maintenance solution, whether that's yeah. half-strength saline or Normasol M. Yeah. And that's it. That should be um, good. And yeah. maybe... You know, buy a few bags of yeah. frozen plasma and keep it in your yeah. freezer. 
Yeah, or at least know where you can get some quickly yeah. if you can. But other yeah. than that, um, yeah. I don't see much of a need to carry anything no. else, um, especially the if you're not, clinic. especially if you don't have the time or knowledge to discriminate who right. might need more detailed yeah. therapy. Yeah. Which is most of us. Right. <laughs> right. And if you do, if you, you occasionally get those cases and I love, con I love these kind of consults when somebody's like, Hey, I have this patient and it's sodium is one Oh four. And what do I do? And I'm like, well, you can, they're like, we'd like to refer, but the owner can't. And I was like, okay, let's go through. We're going to do the math together. We're going to, I love doing those kinds of cases. Right. So yeah, there, you do have resources available. If, if you do this once every four years, like it's not worth it for you to spend the time, energy and resources to, to have this ready to go. Um, so yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like keeping things simple generally um, is, again, is it going to work for 100% of the patients you see? Probably not, but it might work for 99.9%. And yeah. that's pretty good um, yeah. because it's just not practical to keep all sorts of things um, in your in your mind or on your shelf for that like 0.01%. So yeah. yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, we probably should just like summarize really quickly what, you know, the the, the take home messages for um, this yeah. the, the, the Gretchen question paper. Basically, they went through the review. Here's the history. Here's the, the controversy. Um, but then they, they took each of the synthetic colloids, colloids individually and kind of summarize the, the findings. So, um, and they also review, we're not going to have time to go in through the detail, but you should definitely do this, um, is go through, cause they'll talk about the, you know, what is a hydroxyethyl starch? Mm -hmm. Um, what, how is it made? How, what's the difference between when they give you the numbers, the molecular weight, um, and then in the size, what do those numbers mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and so you should definitely go through all of that. And then they talk about the proposed mechanisms of potential injury for, yep. for each of them. But so then they go through, um, cause we talked about AK but we haven't really talked about the coagulopathy. That's the other potential right. concern yep. is, is uh, usually a mild, like it's not going to suddenly be like, oh, your patient's bleeding all over the place, but can it worsen pre-existing coagulopathy, that kind of thing. Um, but for the recommendations, so they go through head of starch. Essentially, th there's not enough evidence to recommend it. Like mm -hmm. our recommendation is not to use it is what they would say. Yes. Um, head of starch should be avoided if the animal responds already to crystalloid or other therapy. It's not a replacement for albumin in patients with severe hypoalbuminemia. Natural colloids should be considered. So basically not really a lot of uses. Then they moved on to gelatins, um, a different class of synthetic colloids. And basically there's not a whole lot out there, but what, what we know, it's not appropriate to use gelatin as an alternative to head of starch. That's a direct quote. Um, dextran, um, other than coagulation impairing effects, adverse effects are largely unknown. And as for other colloids, maybe some kidney injury. So like you shouldn't be using that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of more of the same. They did go in more into the um, natural colloids and some about albumin use and, and plasma. Um, and, and that's fair. Um, and, you know, they, they also talked about like what's available to you, um, yeah. you know, but it's, there's not really good evidence for using any of the, the natural colloids either, like under what circumstances mm -hmm. are these preferable, um, those kinds of things. So there's, there's just still so much we don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of these days we should probably do a journal club on albumin, uh, infusions. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things. So um, I, I published a review article on that one okay. in, uh, uh, what's the one, North American Small Animal Pride, the clinic. Yeah, that clinic. Why can't I think of the name? Yeah. Um, 
Because I I'd presented on that topic at IVEC several years ago, mm-hmm. and then after that, got asked to like, hey, can you write, you know, write a review on this? Because I'm like, yeah, that that's so yeah, happy to talk about that one. That's a topic I can nerd out on for sure. I mean, really, what topic can I not nerd out? <laughs> <laughs> I can be like, I don't know anything about this. Let's nerd out about it. Cars. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I totally would. I'd be like, no, I wouldn't. I'd be like, does it have four wheels? That's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, you found that really fast. You found something I would not nerd out on very quickly. That's something you would nerd out on though, right? That's why I know that you would not. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a very one-sided conversation for you. Um, so at any rate, uh, encourage you guys to, you know, look at the research yourself. I mean, a good one to start with is the review article called yeah, yes or no. it, you know, really the, it's, it's, it was really well done. It's a long one. Um, so, you know, prepare yourself. Maybe you don't have to read it all in one sitting if this is, it's not the kind of topic that you get super excited about. Um, but I, I do appreciate that they made recommendations. Absolutely. Um, I feel like too often um, as scientists, you know, we could try to be like, well, we got a hedge. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, there's still a hedge. And that based on the information we have now, which leaves the door open for new information can change this. But based on what we know right now, we really, there's not justification to be recommending these routinely. So, um, so feel free um, to, you know, Make your own assessments, which is the big thing. But I think you and I are both like, let's keep it simple. Yeah. Simplify your your fluid choice life, um, and you know, just do the best you can when you're out there. Yeah. And if you're training and have tests coming up, probably about to make sure you understand the difference between yeah. the different starches and the, and as you mentioned, the presumed pathophysiology of renal yeah. injury with colloids. Yeah, and this this article does a good job of giving you an overview of that. Um, it's not going to be like super in depth, but if you're just like, Ugh, I have a hard time remembering this, it's it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, for for those of you in residencies where this is going to come up on an exam <laughs> in your future, um, it's a good one. That the colloids yes or no um, article is from the um, critical care required reading list. Yeah. Um, that one is. I don't think the other one is, but um, it's still it's a good one to be familiar with. But for the overview. Um, yeah. Yes or no? It's just yes or no. Um, <laughs> so awesome. Um, thank you so much again yeah, for being here and to talk about. Articles, articles, articles. <laughs> you wanted me to include that oh, in the last one. I'm so sorry. yeah. Um, at any rate, thanks again for joining me for another journal club. Um, super glad that you were able to, to be here again and um, so that we can continue the conversation. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll find some articles and and hopefully we'll see you all next week. Hear you all, listen to you all, we'll talk to you all next week.